Well, Father, we come before you and we, we want to know Christ. We are so thankful for the Gospels. We thank you that it does more than just testify of his birth, death, and resurrection, but in between we, we see the character of Christ. And today, Lord, as we focus on his mercy, I pray that we will be drawn to him, that we will know that even though we have done many things to repulse him, Christ did not come to earth to be repulsed by sinners, but to draw sinners to himself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on Christmas Eve, 1955, Debbie Fox entered this world. And when she came into this world, she shocked her parents and she shocked her doctors. See, De- Debbie was born with... Um, a cleft palate, and the cleft palate went from her lips all the way up to her forehead, pushing her eyes to the side of her face, and if you see a picture of Debbie, you would see that this is a child with a gaping hole in the middle of her face. Now, her parents wisely decided to keep her away from public view. She did not go to school. She did not go to church. Um, they kept away all mirrors from her presence. And at eight years old, she came across a handheld mirror, and she saw her face for the first time, and she screamed in terror. And this is what she wrote. So that was what I looked like. That was why I couldn't play with the other children, go to school, go to church, run into the store or buy candy or ice cream. All these things had been forbidden to me. Now, the good news is um, she was put in contact with a plastic surgeon who did a medical miracle as far as restoring her face. But if you were to see that child with a cleft palate that went all the way up to here, I mean, honestly, how would you respond? If somebody were to walk into church and they had large boils all over their face, or perhaps they had a birthmark, that just covered half of their skin. Perhaps they had some severe scars. How would you respond, honestly? Right, the initial emotional response would be one of disgust. And disgust is not necessarily a bad emotion. The feelings of disgust have saved people's lives throughout the centuries, right? I remember when I was a kid, my mom put Mr. Yuck stickers. Remember those kind of the green little stickers that basically say, don't drink this? She put it on all these household chemicals like Windex, so I didn't think that Windex was blue raspberry Kool-Aid, right? Mr. Yuck says, don't eat this, it'll save your life. So feelings of disgust have been designed to basically preserve our, our health. And when we know that some disfigurement is not contagious, this almost seem, seems cruel, doesn't it? to have feelings of disgust, but what if somebody had a disfigured face and that was a signal that this disfigured face can actually jump from them to you? How would you react? Friends, that is the world of leprosy. That is what a leper experienced during the time of Jesus. And you can just imagine what it would be like walking around knowing that you trigger feelings of disgust to every person that you ever meet. You are disgusting. People back away. You need to warn them that you're coming. 
Now, understanding that, I think gives us a, a fresh perspective on what's about to happen in this passage. Luke 5, 12 through 16. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Now, this is a miracle of what I call disgusting mercy. It's Jesus' mercy to the disgusting. Now, the old saying goes, beauty is only skin deep, right? <laughs> and we, you may not have some sort of disfigured face or some sort of contagious disease. Actually, you might right now. You just don't know it. You'll get the test in a few days and let us know later on, right? I mean, we, we all kind of have lived in this world where it's like, stay away, he's got the plague, or she's got the plague. But when it impacts the way you look and your whole life, uh, you can understand why lepers live their lives bringing disgust to everyone they encountered. But I think if you were to look deep within yourself, right, I, I, you would probably come to terms with, that, with the fact that um, there's some disgusting parts of your life as well. In Mark 7:15, Jesus says, "There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but things that come out of the person that defile him." Right? There is some categories of sin, perhaps some dark secrets, stuff that you're not going to really confess in small group. Though, if word got out, you would you would be afraid that people would back away from you with disgust. It might even cause you to think that maybe the Lord is disgusted with me. And here's the problem. If you believe sincerely that the Lord is disgusted with you, that when he sees you, he, he steps away and he backs away, then you're going to think the Lord wants to have nothing to do with me. I'm going to say no for Jesus and not appeal to his mercy. See, that would be the normal reaction of the leper, right? There are many lepers in Israel, but he's the one featured here who actually comes forward. He steps forward in faith, and he asks for mercy to a disgusting person. And get this, Jesus grants it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this miracle and what it says about Jesus, and then we're going to kind of sit back and and really reflect on feelings of disgust. Like, what do you do if you believe God is disgusted with you? Okay? So let's look at this miracle first. The conviction of the leper, the compassion of the king, the command of the king, the consequence of healing, and all of this points to the mercy of Jesus Christ for disgusting people like you. The conviction of the leper. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, imagine that you lived during the time of Jesus. You are a faithful Jew, and you are a picture of perfect health. Well, one day you wake up, and, and you just start to notice some, some weird pain that you never really experienced before in different parts of your body. And, and over the course of days, they, you begin to notice that, well, your, your skin's developing some, some spots. It looks scaly. They're kind of losing their color. And, and you're thinking, you know what? I better do the safe thing and talk to a priest. Now, you go to the priest, and the priest is a family friend of yours. You explain that, I don't know, there's something weird going on with my skin, and I know that the law commands me to, to see you, so what do you think? And so he looks over your body, and he studies the, the scabs. He looks over the, the hair follicles, and he says, you know what? Just to be on the safe side, um, you need to be quarantined for a week. So have everybody stay away from you for a week. I will come back, and we'll see what we got. Well, during those seven days, those spots become thicker and more scaly. It's very clear that this is not going away. And when your friend comes back to see you, he, he, he says, you've got leprosy. You have one of the many diseases that fit this category. And I'm sorry, but you're going to have to leave this community. Not only do you have to leave the community, you have to basically purposely look disheveled so that people will see you and know, stay away from him or her. When you approach a community of people, you are to shout, unclean, unclean, so that everyone knows that they are to stay away from you. Well, the leprosy progresses, the skin, you know, some of the creases in your skin begin to deepen. You lose more feeling and sensation. Things begin to build up. You almost look like a lion because your face is so uh, distorted. You lose feeling in your appendages. You lose fingers and, and toes. And, and all the while, you, you can't see your family. You can't be a part of your community. The only people you can spend time with are other lepers who have been exiled by their communities as well. There's not a lot of hope for you. Now, you know some of the Bible stories. You remember how the great prophet Elisha healed a leper by the name of, of Naaman, had him wash in the Jordan River. But something that, like that has, has just never happened, not for centuries. But you hear about this healer up around Galilee. You hear about how he is expelling demons. He is healing the sick. And you decide, I've got nothing to lose. So you are by the lake, you see a crowd, and you begin to think, you know, I'm just going to go for it. Normally, you're supposed to stay away from crowds, but you're in a desperate situation. And so you walk towards this man that seems to be the center of attention, and all the crowds part like the Red Sea, right? No one's getting close to you. And when you see him, you fall at his feet, and you say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you 
can make me clean. See, when this leper comes to Jesus, he calls him Lord because he obviously believes that he has some supreme power. We don't know of his divine declaration, but he knew he was an important man. But what's interesting is the question is not whether or not he has the power to do it. The question is whether or not he has the willingness to do it. You see, it was often believed that when somebody was sentenced to leprosy, they somehow deserved their fate. Now, if we were to go back 40 years, remember the the beginning of the AIDS epidemic? At the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, the people who contracted the disease were the homosexuals, it was the sexually promiscuous, and it was often drug users who would, let's say, share needles. And so the popular sentiment would be, if somebody has AIDS, right, they probably did something to deserve it, right? Same thing with monkeypox right now, right? They, they probably did something to deserve it. You see somebody with leprosy, he probably did something to deserve it. And this was fortified by some of the instances of leprosy in the Bible. For instance, Miriam was jealous of Moses, and what happened? She became a leper. Joab, who was a bloodthirsty general for David, is cursed by David that his house will always have a leper in the house. King Uzziah, in his arrogance, entered the temple. Remember that? And he was struck with leprosy. And so there was this understanding that if you have leprosy, you probably did something to deserve it. And that was easier for the community to accept, right? We're not being cruel. You know, they're just getting what they deserved. We're going to keep our distance. And so you can see why this leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, right? You got the power, but I mean, maybe you don't want to go against God's judgment on my life. Maybe I deserve this. And this is when we see the compassion of the king. In the account of, in Mark, same account, it says that Jesus had compassion on the man. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and touched him. There's been a a lot of remembrances of Princess Diana who died 25 years ago this week. And probably her finest hour was in 1987 when Princess Diana visited the first AIDS unit in a British hospital. Now, it was believed at the time that AIDS could be spread through casual contact. Even though that was disproven four years before that by some scientific studies, the idea was if you touch a gay person, if you hug them, hold their hand, you might get it. And in one of the more iconic photos of her life, she's sitting down with an ungloved hand, holding hands with an AIDS patient, right? It was compassion. And so here is Jesus, and before he heals this leper, he reaches out and he, he touches his leprous arm, hand, we don't know, but he touches the man. Now, when you were a Jew, cleanliness, right, that was extraordinarily important. To be clean was to be acceptable to God. It is not to be unclean, 
but presentable. And, and part of cleanliness was related to um, the curse. The most unclean object in Israel was a dead body. If you find a dead body and you touch it, you are unclean and you had to be cleansed by special rituals. There was a belief that if you are bleeding and you can't stop the bleeding, it made you unclean because the life force, right, is leaving your body. And a leper was considered, next to a dead body, the most unclean person or object on the planet. And by the time Jesus was walking this earth, there were all these rabbinical um, prescriptions to keep you from touching a dead body. Or not, not just a dead body, to keep you from, from touching a leper. For instance, if a leper stuck his head in a house just to say hi, that house was considered unclean. If you see a leper on a windy day and uh, you need to stay 150 feet away from the leper if the leper is upwind, but if they're downwind, it's a reasonable distance of six feet. Right? Sounds familiar? <laughs> right? They were considered unclean. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. And here, Jesus reaches out and he touches this leper. Now, he's making a point in touching him because, you know what, he didn't have to touch him. Jesus could have done a touchless miracle. Remember when he stood over uh, Peter's mother-in-law? He rebukes the fever. Get out of there, you nasty fever. He didn't really do that, but it, it was something similar. He rebukes it. We know that he's able to do long-distance miracles. He could have done like Elisha where he sends a servant out to Naaman who has leprosy and says, you go out and wash in the Jordan River seven times. He didn't have to touch him. But Jesus reaches out with his hand and he touches the untouchable and says, I will. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will. I am willing to give you a healing. And then he gives a command, be clean. Be clean. See, Jesus is willing because his mission is to restore this world from the curse. He came to push back disease. He came to eradicate death. And really, all disease is pre-death, isn't it, right? All disease is a distortion of the fall. And when Jesus came to earth, he's going to create a new kingdom without death, without sin, and without disease. This is an extension of his mission. So, of course, he's willing to do it because he's here to show mercy. But he's also here to demonstrate his power. And so he says, be clean. Not be healed, by the way, but be clean. And immediately, the leprosy was cleansed. The defilement of the disease immediately left the body. He didn't put him on antibiotics. He didn't say, go wash in a river. This was not a delayed miracle. He touches, says, I will be clean. I don't know what kind of special effects we can have to kind of show what would happen. I don't know if it's like you blinked and it was just gone or if there's some dramatic like pulling back and the healing of skin. We don't know what happened. All we know is the leprosy obeyed and he was returned to full health. He was clean. And then he gives the following command. 
And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. Now, initially he tells them, don't tell anyone, okay? We all know that people often wanted to hijack Jesus' mission. Uh, Preaching was what he was about. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he was augmenting that preaching with the healing. Unfortunately, people would want to make it more about the healing ministry than the preaching ministry. So that's part of the reason why he says, don't tell anyone, don't let this get out. But your first priority is to go to the priest and show the priest that you have been cleansed. Now, the reason why he was exiled from the community was because of the Mosaic law. And to be restored to the community meant that you had to do a ritual sacrifice. In this case, it involved two birds, a piece of cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and some hyssop. They would take one bird, kill it, let the blood drain into this bowl of water where they put the yarn and the hyssop and the the, uh, cedar wood, and then they would sprinkle the leper seven times and let the other bird go. You'd have to wait seven days just to make sure that everything was copacetic and then he would be shaved completely he would have all his clothes laundered and at that point there would be a declaration that this man is clean according to the law of Moses and he can rejoin the community right by doing this Jesus has essentially given this man his life back and there's another purpose too he's making it clear that this mosaic law that isolated him was not necessarily a bad law, was it? It was to preserve the health of the community. And and so Jesus is is supporting these scriptures, right? The, The law is still good. But then he also wants this man and this healing to be a testimony to the priest. You see, the law could um, constrain sin, It might limit the reach of sin. It might limit the reach of leprosy. But the law could not heal leprosy, right? The law could constrain the curse, but it can't reverse the curse. That's something only Jesus can do. And so this former leper was to make a statement to them. It was proof to them. And then we get to the consequences of the healing. Verse 15. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Healing a leper. It was believed that the only more difficult miracle for somebody to perform was raising somebody from the dead. This accentuated his ministry, made him an even greater rock star, and and more people would come to him because they were seeking a healing, but Jesus would often strategically retreat and pray so that he could focus on the mission which God sent him to do. But all this to say, by healing this disgusting person, by cleansing him, by causing the disgusting person to be desirable once again, Jesus worked a great miracle and also showed his character. See, his skin disease isolated him 
from the community. Now, if he were to have some sort of invisible disease, he would not have been ostracized, right? People walk around with COVID, you can't really see it, at least initially, right? Nobody's ostracized, but when your disease is on your face, <laughs> you can't get around it. See, there's, there's a, a special relationship that all of us have with our skin, right? When I see you, your skin, I see you. Your skin is the largest organ in your, your body. Your skin shows emotion, right? If you talk to a preteen girl about, do you like any boys? She blushes. Or if a preteen boy wants to ask a girl out or something like that, his palms sweat. I mean, it's all there for them to see. To show your skin to somebody is an act of profound intimacy, isn't it? But what happens when your skin begins to turn against you? Ask any kid who has severe acne, right? It's very difficult for them to look in the mirror. Ask any mom about a dreaded disease called impetigo. You guys ever heard about that one? Oh, it's terrible. It's a, it's a rash that just jumps from kid to kid. And it's been the bane of many people. In fact, I do think it fits the biblical description of leprosy. So leprosy covers a whole multitude of diseases. But when your skin becomes gross, you feel gross. And here we have a man who is wearing this gross disease all over his body for them to see. When children and mothers look at him, they immediately kind of turn the other way, almost in fear. All his life, he's treated like he's disgusting. So that's external, isn't it? But I think truth be known, sometimes there can be elements about your life that if you were to confess or bring to light, other people might be disgusted with you, or so you think. Right? Often when you, know, you get involved in a Bible study and people might be confessing their sin, there are certain sins that um, are safe to confess. Patience and lack of patience is a safe confession, right? Pray for patience. That's what I'm really struggling with. You don't bring up that you're looking at dirty pictures on the internet. You don't bring up that you feel like you're a woman trapped in a man's body. I mean... I could go on, but there's a list of sins that are like, you just don't go there. I remember being at a uh, college retreat, and we had a time of confession, co-ed, big mistake. And this guy got up and said, I just want to confess that I've just been lusting after women, and I want to, I want to touch them. Right? Thank God I wasn't in charge, Right? <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? There, there, there is a level of, that made everyone want to step away, right? That's disgusting. Because that's the feeling of disgust. You're revolted. You want to back away. It's like run for the hills, right? See, there's some sin in our lives that, that caused us to think that's how other people would respond and that's how God would respond. And this introduces um, something called shame, okay? Shame is the belief that you are unacceptable to God and to others because of something that you have done or something 
that has been done to you. Uh, to feel shame is to believe that you are on the receiving end of disgust. That people know this about you, they, they won't like you anymore. God knows this about me, he doesn't like me anymore. And it's possible to feel feelings of shame because of your own sin. But you know, it's possible to feel shame because of what other people have done to you. If someone has been raped, right? Not their fault. But they feel dirty, disgusting, and ashamed. There's some sins, like maybe a secret sex addiction, same-sex acts, same-sex attraction, pornography. I mean, just stuff that you would never confess in mixed company or non-mixed company. There's a sense of cosmic embarrassment. Or you go ahead and you give yourself into the, your sin and you, you just feel dirty and you feel unclean. You feel like you are disgusting. You have internal leprosy. And the problem with that is if you believe that God is disgusted with you, then you will never go to God. So I think it's worth considering how do you deal with these feelings of, of shame? The first step is you need to sift guilt from shame. Guilt is a good emotion. Guilt is what you should feel when you have sinned against God. It's a feeling of conviction. You have done something wrong. Your guilt remains on you until you repent. Does that make sense? You do something disgusting, the guilt remains on you until you repent, until you confess your sin to God, confess it to others when prudent. Uh, it means that you run as hard away from that sin towards Christ as you did when you ran towards that sin. Now, when you truly repent, there's some promises you can claim. One of the great ones, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, uncircumcision, Jews would see the uncircumcised as unclean, right? And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses, not some, not the good ones, not lack of patience, but all of them, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All sin can be forgiven. Well, what if I committed the you know, unforgivable sin? Well, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that could only take place during the time of Jesus where you see a miracle of Jesus and to say that was not Jesus but a demon. That's the only sin that can't be forgiven and it cannot happen now. That means every sin, even sin that can put you in jail, can be nailed to the cross. Every sin can be forgiven. Jesus was not selective in which sins he died for. On top of that, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, there was a transformation where Jesus, get this, became the most disgusting man who ever lived. People saw him and went, oh, God turned away from him. 
All the sin was placed upon him. All the stuff that causes God to go, ugh, was put on Jesus. And he took that from you and put it on himself. And then when he was raised again, Jesus was completely clean, no longer deemed unclean. And he gave us his righteousness so that when you are forgiven, when you repent, you can claim the righteousness of Christ. All of your uncleanness was put on Jesus. He gave you his cleanness, right? It's amazing. So part of dealing with shame is to, to recognize, do you really believe that? And there's a refreshing that takes place. The first time you repent, that is a static, permanent reality. But every time we do sin, you go back to the cross, you keep on repenting, you claim the forgiveness of sin. So, if you do something like that, you confess, you repent, you claim forgiveness. Now, there's some other reasons why we might feel a sense of shame. Your shame might be triggered by revelation. It might be triggered by revelation. Mike's wife happened to catch him in a lusty internet session. That was a turning point for him. He went to his pastor, confessed to sin, confessed to his wife. And over the next year, he has made incredible progress in this area. He has been faithful. God has changed him. But you know what? Deep down, every time he looks at his wife, he thinks, she's probably thinking about my sin. When, she, when he shakes his pastor's hand, he says, he's probably thinking about my sin. Right? That's, he was revealed, and he feels like his sin lives on in the minds of many people. Secondly, shame can be triggered by rejection. Sally was in love with a young man, but she has a sexual past, and at some point in the relationship, she decided that it is the time to reveal it. It's too much for her boyfriend. And so he ends the relationship. And here is Sally, who bared her soul. It was part of her past, but her boyfriend can't get past her past. And now, she feels a sense of shame. It can be triggered by contamination. Perhaps a young woman was sexually abused as, as a child and always feels like damaged goods because of that. I've been contaminated. Maybe I did something to invite this. Maybe I should have spoken up. Right? That's contamination. Or, or John's been obedient to the area of, of, of lust, but... His year-long streak has been broken, and he feels like it's all done. It's all gone. So what's the, the remedy to these feelings of shame? Right? What do you do when you feel a sense of shame, even though you have repented? And, and I think that's why it's important to kind of go back to a theology of shame. Because remember, the, the first time anybody experienced shame was when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Remember, they were placed in the garden. There was one rule. Well, actually, there, there are two of them, be fruitful and multiply. We have that. But then there's one negative rule. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Don't eat for it, lest you shall surely die. Well, you know how the story goes. Eve has a conversation with a snake. She eats the fruit, persuades Adam to do the same. And remember when, when they saw each other, they realized that we're naked. They became ashamed, and they hid their skin from each other right? 
But then God comes in and he, he begins a beautiful process of restoration. He gives the snake, he gives Eve, and he gives Adam some curses. And these curses actually have seed forms of hope baked into them. All of these curses deal with what we call the creation mandate. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? That is what they were supposed to do. Adam and Eve, you are in charge of making babies and spreading image bearers all over the planet. You are to rule in my place. But this was compromised through a series of curses. The first one is on the, on the snake. He says in Genesis 3.15, But I will put enmity between you, the snake, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the first part was a promise that one of the children of Eve, notice how she's going to have children, will turn on Satan, and they will get into some combat. He will be struck in the heel. Satan will be crushed in the head. Who is this child? Well, Romans 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In the future, Jesus will crush Satan. He'll strike him on the heel, which he did on the cross, right? That hurt. But Satan will be ultimately defeated. And that deliverer will come through Eve's child. But that doesn't mean having child, children will be easy, right? To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you, right? She will still suffer. Suffer every time she goes through labor. Speaking of labor, we have one for Adam, 317 through 18. Then Adam, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're sentenced to a very hard life. Now, if this curse was given to a man like Judas, your life is going to be miserable from this point on, what do you think Judas would do? He'd find a tree to hang himself, right? That's why the first words that he says after this, the first words give us a lot of hope. In Genesis 3.19. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. He basically acknowledges the curse, and Adam is basically saying, we disobeyed that second command, but Lord, we are going to obey the first command. We are going to trust that this death sentence has, will be sufficiently delayed 
so that Eve will have that child that you were talking about in the curse for her. He moved forward in faith. And in response to Adam's faith, this is what the Lord does. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I want to make five observations about this. Number one, God made. God does an additional act of creation here. He is the one who makes these animal skins. Two, speaking of skin, to harvest skin from an animal, what do you have to do to the animal? That's exactly right. You kill the animal. So, the penalty was death. An animal receives the death penalty in place of Adam and Eve. Thirdly, he clothed Adam and Eve. He clothed them. He, he covered their skin, right? He covered their shame. Fourth, God approves of the covering. Since the innocence was lost, they can still be covered by a sacrifice made for them. But fifth, they are still exiled. They are still exiled. And from that point on, clothing was a way of covering shame. For instance, the priest had to be covered when they stepped on the altar. We read in Revelation 6, 1, that the martyrs who dwell in heaven, this is what's said of them. And they were each given to them a white robe. People aren't naked in heaven. They will be covered with a robe given to them by the Lord. He will cover their shame. We read in Romans 4, 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Isn't that interesting? See, the solution to shame, the exposure, what causes us to have feelings of disgust is to claim the forgiveness offered to us by God through Jesus Christ and his blood who will cover our sins. That he will cover our bodies eventually with that white robe. That the righteous deeds of Christ will cover all that we have done. And so going back to this leper, he was disgusting. He was treated as disgusting. He was deemed unclean. And when he went to Jesus, he approached Jesus in faith, right? Faith in his power and hopeful faith in his mercy. And Jesus was willing to touch him and to make him clean and to restore him to the community by sending him to the temple to make appropriate sacrifices. And all of this, I think, points to a, to a greater miracle, doesn't it? See, everyone who, who sins is unclean before God. God's natural disposition towards sin is what? Disgust. It's revulsion. And yet there's a great problem, right? How can, God still loves revolting people, and so how can he prepare them to be in his presence? And the way that is done was he sent his son to die on the cross, and the clean became unclean. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything to defile himself. He was even observant to the law of Israel at the time. He did everything right. He was not defiled in any way. He was clean. But on the cross, he was treated like a filthy, disgusting sinner. He was disgusting to everybody who saw him. At that moment, when he took upon our sins, he was disgusting to God. 
and in raising him from the dead, he can offer a free pardon and offer his righteousness to cover us. You see, all of us have done disgusting things. But no sin is too disgusting for God. He can forgive it all. But to receive this disgusting mercy, what do you have to do? You can either just answer the question for Jesus, right? And to say, Jesus would want to have nothing to do with me. Well, why not let Jesus make that call, right? Don't say no for Jesus. Or you could, in faith, like this leper, go to Jesus and say, if you are willing, make me clean. And at that point in time, Jesus will reach out to you and he will extend to you some disgusting mercy. Jesus loves disgusting people and he loves to give mercy to disgusting people. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's no accident that the people here are assembled for this time and this place. And there might be somebody here who deep down they know that they have done something that if word got out, people would step back and step away. I want to have nothing to do with them. And Lord, they may believe deep in their heart that you feel the same way about them. I pray that this message will minister to them, that they won't run away from you, but run to you, that they'll repent of that sin and claim your mercy and draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.